You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through books and uh, heartsandminds.com as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. My guest today on Uncommentary is Jay Kim, pastor of teaching and leadership at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. Are you, do you surf? Are you like a beach boy out there? Oh man, no, I am the, uh, anomaly. I do not surf. I have surfed, uh, but I wouldn't call it surfing. What you, I did. Yeah, you, you, you have surfed. That's why you don't surf. Is that the way it is? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Jay's also uh, on the core leadership team of the Regeneration Project and co-hosts the Regeneration Podcast, written for Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition Relevant, and Theology Curator, among others, graduate of Fuller Seminary. Your first book is Analog Church, which, by coincidence, we'll be talking about today, released uh, last month from InterVarsity. About the challenges yeah, and opportunities right. churches face in the digital age, offering a new and hopeful way forward. You live in Silicon Valley, where you uh, sponsor Google and all Facebook and all these mega wealthy corporations. 
<laughs> with your wife and two children. Jay Kim, welcome to Uncommentary. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat. So um, I got a notice about your book, I guess, from uh, my IVP uh, marketing contact. Uh, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age, which I'm assuming you didn't start writing when you first heard about coronavirus and the fact that we might all get locked down. How long have you been working on this? <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. I uh, Well, you know, the book writing thing is, this is my first book, like you said, and I did not know how long it would take. It was about two years ago. Wow. You know? So I started writing it almost two years ago and thinking about it uh, even further back than that. So it's interesting. It's uh, certainly it was not a part of our marketing plan to release the book in the midst of a global pandemic that would force us completely digital. But, uh, you know, as, as strange and ironic as that is it's been uh i've actually enjoyed it and i'm hoping that the book at least gives some language um to our hope you know that we have from all the digital fatigue i think that's that's setting in so uh you're in the context of silicon valley did do you think that uh like motivated you or gave rise to the way you're thinking about any of this uh where you actually live yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been in the Silicon Valley basically my entire life. And what that's done in in terms of the sort of intersection between digital technology and the digital age and the church and our ecclesiology, um, it's given me some helpful perspective. You know, I'm surrounded, both friends and family, I'm surrounded by folks who are in the business of making the stuff that we are so immersed in, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of these little contraptions uh, in our back pockets and and uh, on our desks that we are just, you know, we, we lose ourselves in these things all day, every day. And uh, super helpful on one hand, but it's also given me perspective um, in terms of what it actually is, in terms of its physicality and its, uh, its actual reality, you know. So... Yeah, it, it definitely influenced. I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time just by by uh, sheer proximity, you know, yeah. I'm around it, as we all are, but I'm around it, I think, in a unique way, just with so many people in my life who uh, are on the on the front edge of, of creating and innovating. And so, yeah, it's been something that's been a, a constant in terms of my uh, worldview, and, and certainly it's had an impact and influence. And, in terms of my journey and, and specifically the journey of writing this book. Very cool. So um, several years ago, I, like most of the known universe, attempted to move all of my um, you know, daily to-dos and calendaring and record-keeping and all that kind of stuff to an online format where I could have access uh, anytime I wanted it and all that kind of thing. Um, but after, I don't know, maybe two years of trying to do something like that, I actually switched back to a, an analog, uh, day planner. So I, I created my own styles, kind of a mashup. Uh, but I use a, a journal, a physical journal for my, yeah. uh, to do's and my planning and all those kinds of things. And your first chapter is called slow and steady. Why go analog? What have you noticed about the the convergence of digital and analog that kind of wants you to push people back toward 
um, the more physical and the less digital. Yeah, well, I think the title of the chapter sort of uh, speaks to what I'm getting at. You know, digital technologies, by their very nature, are they're designed to speed us up, right? And yeah. it's about, speed is one of the key values of the digital age. Everything is just faster, faster, faster. I mean, we can think back to when I first got internet, you know, I was a senior in high school, and uh, we had the dial-up, as yep. everyone did at the yep. time. And, <laughs> you know, if you were to go to, like, a friend's house or, like, a cafe or something and ask for the Wi-Fi, and then they asked you, uh, or they told you, you know, we don't have Wi-Fi, we have dial-up, and you had to, like, <laughs> physically, you know, wait for the crazy sounds, and, and then somebody jumps on the phone, and then you lose internet connection. We would just think that was barbaric yeah. today, you know? But this is just, you know, about two decades ago, I thought it was magic, you know, I thought it was magical. And now it's just so barbaric because things speed up so fast in the digital age and we want it to be to faster, faster, faster. And that has an impact, right? Undeniably, it has an impact in, in sort of not just the way we think about our lives, but the ways in which we're being formed as human beings, you know, it, it's undeniable. And, and this isn't just like uh, conjecture. I mean, there's research uh, very strong research that sort of shows unanimously that the speed of the digital age is making us incredibly impatient mm -hmm. and speeding us up. And so along those lines, I think the more we can go analog in terms of our experiences as individuals and then, you know, to the point of my book, in terms of what we experience as the church, um, it does the necessary work, in my opinion, of slowing us down. And the reason that's so important, particularly when it comes to our ecclesiology and the way we think about, you know, the formation process of being formed into the image of the risen Christ is, you know, what people would call Christian discipleship is by its very nature a slow and steady work. Yeah. So, you know, to to constantly be pursuing faster, faster, actually uh, works in opposition in many ways um, to our discipleship, to, to Jesus. So the more we can slow down, the better, you know? And yeah, like for me, I, for, I know a lot of people who have gone to the analog sort of journal, um, a classic day planner with pen and paper. I, I don't necessarily do that, although I've considered it. Mm -hmm. And I could see the benefits of it. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily monolithic. You know, I'm not arguing for get rid of all digital technology sure. and become a Luddite and just use pen and paper. But I am arguing for leaning in those directions in very particular ways for the sake of slowing down, you know, slowing us down to think more deeply rather than to simply think ahead all the time. And um, I just think that's crucially important. You have a couple of quotes from a, a book that I read last year that I really recommend a deep work by Cal Newport. Um, one of your, yeah. one of your quotes is spend enough time in a state of frenetic shallowness and you permanently reduce your capacity to perform deep work, which is the thrust of his book. But there's another quote that's really interesting and actually terrifying a little bit. Uh, Newport concludes that once you're wired for distraction, you crave it. And then you say, if we're not careful, social media will change not only our ability, but also our appetite. How does that, um, once our appetite 
becomes whetted and our craving becomes for uh, Twitter scrolling or Facebook newsfeed reading, how does that affect our ability to become mature disciples? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, again, like I said, I think the life of following Jesus is a slow and steady work. It's one of the reasons why uh, Jesus himself uses so many agricultural metaphors mm-hmm. to describe what it looks like to um, to follow him, mm-hmm. you know, and to be formed into his likeness. So, you know, he is the vine, we are the branches, and to bear fruit, we have to abide, uh, which is a slow and steady work, mm-hmm. we have to abide in him. And the reality is, our everything about digital technology, again, is is leading us, it's pushing and prodding us in the direction of speed, of quickness. So, you know, you think about social media, just as an example, it's so fast to go from one post to the next. So whether it's Instagram or Twitter or um, Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook or whatever it is people are using these days, it's literally, you know, my thumbs have never been faster. Right, right. right like it's yeah. so, I just, it's a quick flick of the finger and I'm on to the next thing, you know, and a quick little push of a button communicates to somebody on the other end that I, I like what they have to say or I enjoyed the image that they posted. And there's a, there's a very strong disconnect there where, You know, if I post something on Twitter or on Instagram and I get the little notification telling me that so-and-so liked my post, um, that runs deep in me, you know, and a part of it has to do with my insecurity and Mm -hmm. my longing for affirmation. But for the person on the other end, it doesn't really quite mean the the levels of depth that I I took in when I saw that little notification that so-and-so, you know, that Marty liked my post. Twitter post or whatever, for you, it very well and very likely was just a very quick perusal of the thing I wrote or the thing I posted, and then one quick push of a button, and in all likelihood, your thumb scrolled right up immediately after the thing I posted, and you were on to the next, and and I think, you know, the reality is that deception is, is... is really detrimental to our formation process, mm-hmm. right? We, we then begin to interpret uh, a level of depth uh, based on, you know, notifications that doesn't actually exist. Like the person on the other end wasn't thinking, typically they're not thinking or viewing or ingesting whatever I put out there in the social media world with a level of depth that, I may assume because I got the notification that you liked it, you know, and, and that's problematic, right? Because when it comes to the life of following Jesus, it's not that quick. It's not that easy. You know, we, we can't read one little verse and click a like button (laughs) and have that idea, that truth embed within us on a deep level. You know, it doesn't work that way, but the more to Cal Newport's point, the more we um, acquiesce to that reality of digital technology, the more in, you know, even in our physicality, the more we're going to believe uh, and be formed into the sorts of people who think 
that depth can be achieved that quickly and that simply and that easily. And that's just not true. Yeah. Um, so, so I think in, in those ways and in so many other ways, uh, we have to be careful in terms of how we engage digital technology. You mentioned in um, Chapter 2 uh, concerns about worship in the digital age. Um, unpack that a little bit. Are you, are you, is this more than just having words on screens and your Bible on an app? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get into both of those things a little bit in different ways, you know. I, um, but yeah, absolutely. I, again, I think it's about the formational process and specific to worship. My concern, I think my, my greatest concern when it comes to the worshiping life of the gathered church specifically, um, the digital age and digital technologies are designed to turn us into performers, right? So again, going back to social media, uh, when we post on social media, we're performing, right? Social media is a stage and we are standing up on that stage to perform. We're not actually unveiling and pulling back the curtain on the um, complex uh, realities of our lives. Right. We're not typically posting about the nuanced um, complexities of the ups and downs of our lives. We're just posting highlights. You know, I'm just posting a picture of that aesthetically pleasing sandwich I had for lunch, you know, <laughs> and then people are like clicking like, and it, they're just these random highlights of our lives. And so when churches uh, lean heavily into digital um, it's not just the medium that we're using. We have to understand that the usage of the medium is actually forming and shaping the ethos of the message that we're trying to communicate through the medium. And I'm mm-hmm. borrowing there from the 20th century philosopher Marshall McLuhan, sure. who famously said, you know, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. And he was deconstructing that age-old adage, you know, the medium's changed, but the message stays the same. And his argument, and I agree with him, is that it's not that simple, actually. The mediums we use, they shape the message themselves, Mm -hmm. right? The medium is the message in so many ways. And so, uh, you know, when churches are not mindful of that, then we, and we're seeing this, um, particularly in, in sort of the evangelical church movement, but but even more broadly, we're seeing this, that when we leverage digital mediums without a lot of thought and care, then those our usage of the digital medium is actually turning the worshiping life of the church into a series of performances. And then we are in, that, in, in, um, in connection to that, we are shaping our people, our congregations and communities into consumers mm-hmm. who are... Uh, essentially being invited to consume a product, to take in a performance and be satisfied with that. But um, the worshiping life of the church has always been meant to be an invitation into participation, right? Not uh, an invitation to sit and consume uh, and take in a performance, right. but rather an invitation to stand and in whole-bodied ways participate together in the worshiping life of the church. And so um, that that's really important, uh, and, and I think something that church leaders need to be mindful of. This is Marty Duran. Uh, you're listening to my conversation with Jay Kim on Analog Church, and we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? 
technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right. I'm back with Jay Kim. Uh, Jay, part two of your book is on community and you have um, contrasting uh, digital age and or digital community versus analog community. You call the community in the digital age rebuilding babble and community in analog, a tax collector and a zealot walk into a CrossFit, which I really like. <laughs> Uh, what's going on in community as it relates to, uh, our digital presence and analog? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the book is very specifically about the church and what it means to be the church and ways that we can think critically about how the digital age and its technologies are, are influencing and impacting our ecclesiology, but specific to community, it's actually a much broader conversation and, um, there's been a lot written, uh, you know, beyond the scope of my book, a lot written about how uh, digital technologies are impacting and influence, influencing the way we understand what it means to be connected to one another mm -hmm. as a people. And, you know, uh, you mentioned the titles of the chapters. Rebuilding Babel is just based on the, ba the Tower of Babel story, which is a story about several things. Um, it's the culmination in many ways of sort of one overarching narrative found in Genesis 1 through 11, in particular Genesis 3 through 11, which is essentially about the downfall of humanity, humanity's um, journey away from God's in original intent and design uh, for what it means to be human and mm -hmm. what it means to be human in relation to him and to one another. And so the Babel story is fascinating to me because there is uh, a very strong um, mention of technology. You know, they talk about how the people at Babel use um, brick, you know, and mm -hmm. mortar instead of stone mm -hmm. to build this tower essentially for their own glory. And again, the Tower of Babel story is telling us several key things, but the thing I want to highlight in light of uh, the point I'm trying to make 
in the book is that, you know, this, the story is essentially pointing us to the fact that when we leverage technology for selfish gain, it scatters us. Mm-hmm. It disconnects us in profound ways. And the irony of the Tower of Babel story is that one of their goals in leveraging technology for their own glory was to prevent from being scattered, you know, to become a people of glory, a people of might oh, wow, who good. could use their their ingenuity and their intellect and their technological advancements to um, make a name for themselves. That's literally uh, how the story mm-hmm. unfolds. And, and in doing so, it scatters them, it disconnects them. And there are um, striking parallels between uh, that ancient story and what we see happening today in the digital age. You know, we've been sold this lie that digital technologies would connect us in deeper ways, greater ways. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, the the founder of Facebook, uh, several years ago, um, stood on a stage in front of thousands of people, and he declared that, in his own words, that Facebook was the new church, you Mm -hmm. know? And Mm -hmm. a lot was made of that and written about that. And, you you know, uh, I'm not bashing Facebook. I think there are healthy ways to leverage it. Um, but, uh, he's wrong, you know, you know, in the purest sense, in the theological, ecclesiological sense, something like Facebook could never be the church Mm -hmm. because the church has always been and will always be the body of Christ. You know, the embodied present theological term would be incarnational in the flesh, Mm -hmm. gathered people of God. And so that's the point I'm trying to make, you know, that, that technology, when it's misplaced and it's placed on a pedestal where it was never intended to be, um, it does the very thing that we hoped it would help us prevent, which is um, the disconnection and scattering that we're experiencing now. And that's not just me, you know, making stuff up. I mean, the, there are uh, an endless array of statistics and research that's showing just how increasingly isolated and disconnected we're becoming in the digital age, in large part due to our overuse and misuse of digital technology. I think you have a, you probably have a, a less difficult, uh, less difficulty in convincing people of that right now. Uh, this is the middle of April, 2020, and uh, yeah. most of the country has been on some kind of sheltering in place for over a month and churches, uh, not every church, obviously, but churches across America of all sizes have been meeting online, Sunday school classes to small groups or, you know, meeting via zoom. And everyone I think is becoming, uh, just innately aware that, Hey, this isn't the same as being in person. In fact, you actually address this, uh, in a sense, you, you tell a story that every uh, parent has experienced if they have a smartphone, which is getting lost and trying to do something on it. In your case, taking a or editing a picture. Uh, and then you have a quote from Sherry Turk Turkle who says children have always competed for the parents' attention, but this generation has experienced something new. Previously, children had to deal with parents being off with work, friends or each other. Today, children contend with parents who are physically close, tantalizingly so, but mentally elsewhere. And that's true. And I think we're experiencing uh, kind of a, a different aspect of that in that we are um, we're communications close, but we're physically absent from each other. 
And that's bringing an experience that most people aren't comfortable with, and they want to get back to a more analog way of living life. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, I'm actually hopeful in this time because, like you said, most churches, I think I saw a statistic the other day that like 95% of churches in America have, have created uh, and leaned into some format of, of digital gathering. And on the one hand, I'll say, you know, all churches done the same. And I'll, I'll say on the one hand, um, I'm grateful for these technologies that allow us to stay at least somewhat pseudo connected in this time of forced physical separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I'm, I'm wary of what this might do, but ultimately my concern is, is actually overwhelmed with hope as I see so many people now sort of viscerally experiencing the digital fatigue. And mm-hmm. like you said, at least in my part of the country, we're, we're almost exactly one month into the forced, you know, shelter in place. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say this is the right thing to do, right? For the common good and love of neighbor, this is the right thing to do, um, particularly for the most vulnerable amongst us. Um, but again, there's hope in that that digital fatigue is really starting to set in. I'm hearing it left and right constantly from people, both church leaders and uh, congregants and members of the community alike, that, you know, this is good and it's helpful and I'm glad we can stay connected. But man, I can't wait to get back together, you yeah. know? And um, it, it, it's, it's, it's hopeful in the sense that before we entered into this new COVID-19 reality, I think we were just sort of like flying blind, you know, we were, we were just very comfortable in the digital malaise. We were just like, yeah, this is, you know, it's fine. It's convenient for me to just, you know, FaceTime rather than meet up for coffee and all those sorts of things. But now that we've been forced into this time, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's this increasing tide of, man, I cannot wait until I can actually have this conversation with you in person, Mm -hmm. share a cup of coffee or a meal face to face. And what that's doing is it's heightening our awareness of that, which has always been true deep in our body and bones, you know, that uh, there's just nothing, there's no replacement. There's no substitute for the exchange of embodied presence. Yeah. Um, And without it, you know, without it, then human experience is going to always fall short of being fully human. And that's the way God made us, yeah. you know, it's the way God designed us. And, and so I'm hopeful that this time is pointing us back in that direction. So, uh, really quickly, you have a chapter called how to read a book analog scripture. And what's unique about the chapter title is you do it almost like a hashtag. It's all smashed together. How to read a book, <laughs> uh, analog scripture. Um, what's going on there? Yeah, the reason I smash those letters in together like that is I, I, I describe later in the chapter that um, the scriptures, the Bible, you know, the way we have it even designed on a page right now or digitally on your phone or whatever, you know, with chapters and verses and everything is sort of designed to be, be read very swiftly and, and it's easy to see the demarcating lines between words and we have punctuation, and these are all things we take for granted, but they're incredibly helpful tools in terms of helping us read uh, efficiently and effectively. Um, but the the original manuscripts of the text, 
first of all, you know, chapters and verses are a really recent phenomenon, right. a few hundred years old. But even before that, the original manuscripts of the text, both in Hebrew and especially so in Greek, in the Greek New Testament, first of all, there's no punctuation, right? So there are no periods. That's or my kind. Of, that's my kind of writing, right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No punctuation, you know, and uh, and also, especially in the Greek, there's um, no spacing between the letters, or at moments, there's at best, there's very minimal spacing mm-hmm. between the words, and so the very design of the text was actually it was created in a way, whether intentional or not, it was created in a way where reading the text required us to slow down and to read very carefully and thoughtfully and to engage even on a neurological level, like different parts of our brain. Interesting. Um, so, there, and again, I don't necessarily know that this was intentional. It was just the design of the text at the time. However, what it did was it forced text to be read much more slowly, much more carefully, much more thoughtfully, and in long format. You know, when there aren't chapters and verses, Mm -hmm. you don't have a reference point to say, this morning for my quiet time, I just read John 3.16. That wasn't like a thing until the last few hundred (laughs) years. Essentially, you would say, I just read a section of the gospel according to John. Yeah. And so by its very nature, it was in the text was inviting us to sit down and read for extended periods of time because you would have to cognitively, mentally engage in a way where you would have to decide where the sort of thought process of the text was beginning and ending. And so when you read that way, very quickly you begin to realize that the Bible is actually not um, snippets of chapters and verses Mm. that are intended to be read sort of in these short format ways, but instead that they're these long sort of narrative forms of, you know, different literary forms of poetry and song and historical narrative and, and metaphor and letters and all these types of things. And they're intended to be read that way. So that's the point I'm trying to make that in the digital age, especially, you know, we're, we're being, uh, we're, we're being invited to read very swiftly, you know, and mm-hmm. borrowing from the writer Nicholas Carr and his book, The Shallows, incredibly helpful book. He, he says, he's got this great metaphor. He basically says like before the digital age, we were essentially scuba divers um, who would dive deep into the depths of words and ideas. But in the digital age, because of the digital technologies and the ways in which they're forming us and pushing and prodding us in the direction of efficiency and, and reading very quickly and swiftly, uh, we're no longer um, scuba divers diving deep. We're, we've become jet skiers, you know, mm-hmm. just quickly and swiftly jet skiing on the surface of words and ideas. And I think when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the Bible, uh, there's no substitute for diving deep. Mm. We have to read the text um, in the format, as much as possible, uh, in the format that they were originally designed. And, you know, this isn't, I'm not arguing against sort of like the classic quiet time model. I think that that's really helpful as well. And uh, memorizing verses, I think that's really wonderful and beautiful, but I think they're wonderful and beautiful as supplementary um, means, uh, as long as the primary means is to 
um, sit down on a regular basis and dive into the depths of scripture and the narrative of God's story um, in, in the original sort of extended format mm-hmm. that it was intended to be read. The book is Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age by Jay Kim. Uh, so now that we've talked about the dangers of digital, what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's Jay Kim Thinks. There you go. And that's also yeah, your website, uh, right? JKimThinks.com? That's right. JKimThinks.com is the website and the book and uh, some of our church stuff and other things I'm working on. It's all there. And then JKimThinks is also me on Twitter and Instagram and all of that. Awesome. I want to commend the book. The book is uh, really well designed. It's aesthetically pleasing. Uh, the cover and the interior design, too, is really uh, creative and attractive. And so, um, I want to recommend y'all pick up the book. It'll be, uh, it'll be linked in, uh, the show notes for the, for this episode. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for uh, being on on commentary today. Absolutely. Marty. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from UncommentaryPodcast.com, uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm-hmm.